Welcome to New Mexico PBS. This is the podcast edition of our show, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And today is Sunday, May 16th, 2021. And we encourage you, if you didn't check out our last episode, uh, to get caught up on all that, plus all of the past episodes. But that most recent episode had great conversations with our line opinion panelists on the state Republican Party moving their annual convention out of state because of ongoing COVID restrictions. We also talked about the reinstatement of requirements for those who are getting unemployment benefits to prove that they are searching for permanent uh, work, uh, and that all coupled by what appears to be a worker shortage coming out of the pandemic. And we also talked about the looming threat of a massive eviction crisis uh, event here in New Mexico. Most states are facing for that as a federal moratorium on evictions is set to run out at the end of June. Uh, No word on when the state moratorium will, uh, will... run out, but uh, it is a thing that a lot of folks are paying a lot of attention to. We also had a bonus conversation about the bad breakup between Balloon Fiesta and Canon that you may have read about. But for this episode, we uh, have a couple special items for you. We're going to kick things off with an in-depth interview with congressional candidate Chris Manning. He is the Libertarian running in the special election for the 1st Congressional District. That is the seat you know that was held by Deb Holland before she became U.S. Secretary of the Interior a couple of months ago. And it's a fast and frantic campaign. Wanted to talk to Chris as a Libertarian candidate about how he sees his role in this race and what his role would be in Congress as a third-party candidate should he win. Uh, Chris has uh, a fascinating background, a military background. We're going to talk to him some about that. We're going to talk to him about his educational background, which is really in education and history. Uh, And so lots of great things to get into with Chris. want to remind you, a couple episodes back, we had interviews with the other two major party candidates, Democratic Democrat Melanie Stansberry and Republican Mark Moore. So we encourage you to go back and check those out if you haven't already. But for now, here is our interview with Chris Manning, conducted by senior producer Matt Grubbs. Chris Manning, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to join us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate the offer. Absolutely. Let's start with um, libertarians. What what would it mean to have a libertarian in Congress? Uh, I think it'd be, first off, it'd be historic since no libertarians ever won running as a, a libertarian. Uh, but two, what it also means is an effort and an ability to create uh, you know, real bipartisanship, and in this case, tripartisanship, uh, because libertarians have so much crossover ideologically with with the two main parties, and, and it's very easy then for me to work with both sides of the aisle and to do that realistically. Um, in Washington, as you know, it's a pretty contentious environment right now. Um, how how would you sort of work to ingratiate yourself with leaders of both parties, and wouldn't? aligning with one on one issue and another on another issue put you um, at somewhat of a disadvantage? No, I don't think so. Um, You know, obviously during this campaign, there's always an opportunity for candidates to take shots at each other 
I don't know if you've seen the two debates that I was invited to. Uh, they always have a, a candidate questionnaire. And that's always intended to kind of get the candidates to go after each other. And I think you've seen, I choose not to take that opportunity, not to take that bait. And instead, I maintain a, a positive focus. You won't hear me uh, dragging my opponents. And, and so taking that mentality to Washington, D.C., allows me to, to work with people because let's be honest about what Washington is. If you're trying to get something done, it's about your interpersonal communication and your relationships with people. And we used to have that ideal, you know, that as a representative, your job was to go and create that bipartisanship. Um, and I think veterans particularly, there's very strong evidence that shows that veterans in particular are, are the most bipartisan and tripartisan, you know, representatives in Congress. And again, I have that going for me. And so I think by, by simply being true to myself and, and maintaining that character characteristic in DC is gonna go a lot further than having disagreements on certain policy issues with one side and, and the other. Would you attempt to caucus with either party or would you kind of uh, leave it to, as you said, that interpersonal communication? I'd leave it to the interpersonal. Um, I think if, if I were to go and then I just immediately caucus with one party or the other. I think that kind of ruins my, my image as, as being independent. And that's really what I want to project. You know, there are certain caucuses that aren't aligned party, you know, along party lines that I think would be um, beneficial. And one of those is the problem solvers caucus, where obviously if you've paid attention to my campaign, I'm very much a solutions oriented person. And so I would look at, okay, what is the best way to get something done um, while still staying true to my principles. So that's a caucus that I would be interested in. Sure. Um, we make a big deal in New Mexico, especially in political campaigns about being, you know, sort of from here. Um, and you are. Um, you have a different view of that, though, because as is allowed, you live in Farmington. That's outside of the district. Um, mm -hmm. I guess the question is, why don't you live in the district? And um, if you did represent it, would you plan on moving to it? Um, I lived in Albuquerque as a child. I grew up and did K through three, you know, third grade in Albuquerque. Went to um, I went to Apache Elementary School, and like many parents and, and families in New Mexico, uh, the crime and poor education in Albuquerque was a driver of, of why we left. My mom was terrified of me going to junior high and high school in Albuquerque, and so when an opportunity presented to go home and, and live in a little bit more, uh, I would say obviously a safer neighborhood for raising me, um, my parents took that opportunity. And unfortunately, a lot of people are making that decision. And I think the census data shows so many people are actually leaving the state. They're not just moving to different parts of the state like my family did. They are moving out of the state. And, and until we change our education and our, our criminal justice in Albuquerque, that's gonna be the way things are in the future. And I think obviously having a, a degree in secondary education with my emphasis in history, I have a, a, you know, a view of how to change education that I don't think you know, any of my competitors have. And even though this is a national race, you have the federal office, you don't see a whole lot of education policy. You know, education is something I focus a lot on. You'll see, I, I understand that relationship between education and crime. I bring it up often that until you change the, the education, you can't really change the crime. Okay. Um, do you have a feeling of, of whether or not you'd try to maintain some sort of a residence here if you did win? I don't know. And that would be hard because I literally just bought my house. Um, I'm a first-time homeowner. I signed the closing documents the day after I filed uh, to run. 
And so the idea of doing that all over again um, is kind of daunting. Um, but I also think one of the great things about technology and unfortunately one of the, the few bright glimmers of uh, COVID is that it showed that you can be anywhere and still be a good representative. I, for right now, you know, a classic example, right now you and I are having a, a video conference and it's good connection. It's not like it was 10 years ago. And the truth of the matter is your representative is in DC the majority of the time. So is my address where when I'm home a couple of weeks out of the year gonna make a difference? When I have a philosophy of being very open and, and it'll start seeing in these last two weeks where I'm gonna be hosting Facebook Live events, YouTube events, I'm gonna be doing a lot of online stuff, which anyone in the district then can attend. Anyone in the district can come. And I think that actually makes me, will make me a lot more available to the voters. And I'm gonna take that same mentality to DC. It's not just a campaign thing. You know, obviously with the technology that we have, there's no reason not to continue to host these town halls where you can have a thousand people attend rather than say 50 and in person. So I'm gonna take the benefits that we have right now and apply them if I were elected to represent the district. Great. Well, let's get into some policy stuff. Um, and, you know, you mentioned education and you're right. There's not a whole lot that you do on the national level um, to impact what's happening in classrooms necessarily. Um, I'm curious, uh, going into higher education, um, what do you see as New Mexico doing right and perhaps wrong in how it handles higher education, um, trade schools, technical schools, that sort of thing? I think over the last several years, and I'd say maybe more than a decade, there's been too much of an emphasis on a college degree as your only ability to really provide for yourself in the future. When, you know, when you really look at the data, only about 25% of New Mexicans have a college degree. So what are you telling these 75% of people who don't have that degree? What are we doing to help them? And I'm a big proponent of teaching uh, kids in high school you know, take, taking in essence the Nordic model of, of education and you have this kind of bifurcation of those who are looking to go to college and those who are looking to do trade skills. And I am a very big, big advocate of bringing back those trade skills that we used to have in the 60s. You know, you want to be a mechanic? Let's teach you to be a mechanic. You want to be a cosmetologist? Let's get you your barber's license while you're still in high school. So the day you graduate, you now have a marketable skill, which pays well above the minimum wage. And I think that does a lot to reduce you know, the poverty here in New Mexico, because what happens if you focus on that and we get you some sort of certificate, some sort of training, it helps the economy, but it helps you, the individual, a lot more. And so my focus is going to be more on the majority of people who don't go to college. I think there's already enough messaging for those who do. But I want to see a transition. Um, another area that I've talked about is the FAME program. And Kentucky implemented this several years ago in their community colleges. And it's a mix between your, uh, in essence, getting a, a, a five-semester degree, associate's degree, while at the same time working on, in a manufacturing company. So the company is kind of helping pay, pay the cost. And you get on-the-job training. And you get paid. So you're getting paid to go to school. And then at the end of this program, the average fame graduate one year out is making $59,000 a year. Five years out, they're making $98,000 a year. I'm looking for ways to, to help people make six-figure incomes that don't require four-year degrees. Uh, you've talked a lot about uh, health insurance as being maybe the biggest issue for you. Um, mm -hmm. 
only about 4% of, of New Mexico right now is on an individual plan, which you're a proponent of. Yes. Talk to me about how you would encourage um, the U.S. to move away from an employer-sponsored model onto an individual plan or an individual model. And I think we, you take the Affordable Care Act as an example. And what was it based on? It was based on the Swiss healthcare system. And if you look at the Swiss, they have a 100% individual health insurance plan. Um, and so you, you make that, that philosophical leap. Okay, so we, we implemented a lot of the Swiss issues with the Affordable Care Act, but we didn't make that final transition which would actually make it workable and move to an individual plan. Next thing I always talk about is when you lose your job, as, you, as so many people did during the pandemic, what do you also lose? You lose your health insurance. Right? What if you want to change jobs or you want to take six months off? You don't do it. So many people don't do it because they're afraid of losing the health insurance. The second thing I talk about is we have to make it our, our plan. And, and really, this is at where Congress has to step up. Um, we have to make the laws that make this possible. And for me, you have to marriage one of the advantages we have over the Swiss, and that's our health savings account. The implementation of an individual health care plan, uh, direct primary care and health savings accounts makes an individual system completely workable. You have to have all three of those. And, and really, it's just a law in Congress which prevents you from having a health savings account with any policy. It's really, that's all it is. It's simply Congress wrote a law that says you can only have a health savings account if you have a high deductible health plan. Why? What, what is the point in limiting that what is the point in limiting your ability to pay for for future financial you know medical emergencies i don't see the logic in it um so i think if, if you can pitch that and you show how the individualization and these health savings accounts allows you as the family to make decisions of what coverages do you need the ability to change your coverages at any time just like you do with your car insurance you know i want to make insurance a lot more personable and I think it's out there. Um, it's something that we can do. And if you can pitch that and you show people the advantages, particularly direct primary care, where you actually avoid insurance companies and get so much better care, when people see the, the, you know, the studies on it and the real out realities of people who've made that switch, I, I think it'll work. But it'll be a slow process and it'll be something that I have to fight, obviously, the insurance companies because they don't want it. You have to fight the lobbyists because they don't want it. And you have to fight unions and corporations who, who like what they've got going right now. It's a tough fight, but that's why I address the people. Chris, can you explain direct primary care in just about 30 seconds? I want to get to other stuff too, but, but I want to make sure we're clear on that. Sure. So direct primary care is basically you avoid using your health insurance to have access to your primary care physician. You pay a low monthly fee between $30 and $75 for an individual to $150 a month for a family, and you get unlimited access to your, your primary, primary care physician. It allows for text care. It allows for home care. And so many direct primary care physicians make house calls, right? And you get, on average, 40 minutes a session when you actually do have to go in. 90% um, of them offer same-day or next-day appointments. So... It's something I'm going to talk about in my first Facebook Live event. So follow my campaign and we'll have that next week where I dive deeply into that. 
All right. Um, let's move to uh, foreign affairs, sort of. Um, first of all, you served in Afghanistan, if I'm if I'm correct, and I'm curious your thoughts on the Biden administration's decision to announce that they'll be um, withdrawing completely um, from Afghanistan this fall. I think it's a good policy, and I support it, and it's something I think is almost a decade late. Um, I, obviously, libertarians are very much against and against foreign wars. Um, I'm no stranger. I've been there, and really, the mission has been over since, at least in my eyes, since Osama bin Laden was killed. There was really nothing left after that for us to do, but instead, we've been trying to do a nation building in one of the poorest countries in the world, which, honestly, the 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 Afghan people haven't decided that they want to be a nation. And until the Afghan people decide that that's what they want, there's nothing that the United States can do can, can force that. Um, but also our leaving us, and you know, a lot of the, the criticism is, oh, it'll embolden the Taliban. Well, so much of the Taliban's enlistment is simply because we have, they have so many foreign, as they see it, foreign fighters in their nation. And so when that's removed, that drives up a lot of their recruitment because now what's the Taliban going to tell the people? Oh, we have to fight other Afghan people now? And that's not nearly as, as easy a sell for them. So I think a lot of the worry about leaving Afghanistan is overblown. What do you think of, of President Trump? He had an America first um, stated policy and said that he wanted to get us out of endless wars. He didn't get us out of Afghanistan. Um, is there anything you see to, um, to take from his policy? Well, the, about the only thing I'd say that he did really well was he didn't start any new wars. And, and he's the first president almost in, in my lifetime who didn't do that. Um, and I think that he had, you know, obviously he recognized that these foreign wars weren't in America's interest. Uh, being in Iraq is not in our interest anymore. Being in Syria, you know, per, you know, keeping that civil war going on is not in our interest. Uh, being in Somalia is not being in our is not in our interest. You know, I think after nearly twenty years and the dozens of countries that we have uh, been fighting in and, and service members have been in, I think it's time to realize that we are doing more harm to our national security by keeping uh, such a large footprint so thin. And what we need to do is we need to bring all the troops home from these foreign engagements. We need to allow the military time to recover, um, to rebuild itself, because just uh, even if you don't have ca uh, combat losses of, of men and material, a constant war footing uh, wears out material. And so planes, which were supposed to last for another 30 years, are only going to make it 10 because we put so many flight hours on them. And those are big structural changes to the military that we need. I can think of uh, a couple of businesses that wouldn't be wild about that plan, though. No, and military industrial complex, which, you know, we were warned about, isn't either. Um, but you also have to understand the military has actually been asking for years uh, to do a base realignment enclosure. And a couple of years ago in the defense authorization, Congress passed a, a, an amendment in there and said, we're going to approve the money, but we are forbidding the military from doing a, a study on a base realignment enclosure. And the military is saying that they have about 20% excess capacity. And so again, this is one of those areas where we allow corporations and the, the idea that the military is an employment factory, which we have to get around, we have to stop, right? The, 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 the point of the military is not to keep people employed. The point of a military is to keep the nation safe. 
And, and that's why you get such a fight, especially in Congress about base realignment and closures, because it could affect their district. And maybe it's their base that is this, uh, you know, the military says, well, we don't need this. And so you have job loss. But again, if we're really looking at national security, we have to focus on, on that aspect, but that is not the job of the military. They are not an employment factory. Sure. Chris, we just have about three minutes left here or a little less. I do want to talk about criminal justice reform. Um, again, you're not running for mayor of Albuquerque or, or the Bernalillo County Commission, um, but there is an agreement right now with the Department of Justice and APD over um, policing practices. Do you think that the Department of Justice should allow the city to exit that agreement? Uh, there was a study that came out not too long ago, I believe done by Harvard, that showed that when the DOJ comes into these cities um, and gets into these agreements with the police departments, you see an increase in crime. So I don't see that these have actually benefited any of the police departments that have you know, entered into those agreements with the DOJ. Um, but as far as what we should do at the federal level, um, obviously I'm an advocate of the decriminalization of drugs, the possession and use of it. You know, New Mexico recently... Uh, legalized uh, marijuana. But at the same time, uh, this is the area I like to highlight the difference between legalization and decriminalization. Uh, let's say you're, you're driving in your car and you've got two pounds of tobacco in your vehicle. Police pulls you over for speeding. What are they going to do with the tobacco? Well, nothing. They're going to let you go because it's, there's nothing criminal about carrying tobacco. But what if you have four ounces of marijuana on you now? Well, now you're a criminal because you're over that two ounce limit. And so people have to understand that as long as there is an incentive for the police to put you in jail or the government to put you in jail for something where there is no harm done, um, I'm gonna be opposed to that. And I, I think when people look at, you know, I, I point to Portugal and their decriminalization uh, use of all drugs in 1999 and the success that they had in reducing crime and reducing uh, drug overdoses. When people understand that it isn't that scary and that it's actually successful, it's a lot easier sell. We're, we're there on marijuana, the hard sell is all the other drugs and realizing how much better this nation would be if we did decriminalized it. Uh, I just want to take one more minute and um, talk about guns, um, if you can. I know this is not enough time to devote to the topic. Uh, does America have a gun problem? Well, uh, guns are the easy scapegoat because they're the tool that we use. And I, I like to remind people that, you know, it doesn't matter who has a gun. If I have a gun, nobody gets harmed, right? I'm not going to go out and create a crime, a crime with a gun because of who I am as an individual, we have to recognize that really it's a societal problem. And it's really easy to try and say, oh, well, we need to just ban guns and everything will be good. But you do nothing to address the societal issues that cause the crime. And until we do that and we recognize that it's the person who's holding the gun that we have to change, not the law uh, on gun possession, you know, when you have that argument and people make that realization, I think then we can actually move forward and improving our gun situation, the gun crime in America. Chris Manning, we thank you so much for taking uh, part of your day to chat with us. We really appreciate it. All right, Matt. Thanks so much. All right, now time to take a sharp right turn, but it is one of our favorite times of the month. It is Our Land, our environmental series, New Mexico's environmental past, present, and future with correspondent Laura Paskus. She is a great follow on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, uh, actually, scratch the Facebook part, but Instagram and Twitter for sure. Encourage you to give her a follow if you don't already. She keeps you up to date on so many environmental uh, news updates and, and research uh, releases. Just a great 
way to keep up to date on all of that news. But this month, we are exploring something that we first discovered, as did state officials, uh, a couple summers ago. And that was the first appearances of a blue-green algae uh, in some of our New Mexico lakes, namely Abiquiu and Cochiti. And at the time, officials actually closed those lakes to swimming and recreational activities because of the health risks for humans if you come into contact with it, uh, problems with your skin, as well as if you accidentally ingest it. Uh, Not a good situation and especially dangerous, potentially fatal for pets. And as the water uh, levels continue to lower at our lakes and the temperature continues to rise, this is going to be a recurring problem. So Laura set out to find out exactly what this is. Fast fact, something you may not know, actually not an algae but a bacteria, Uh, but it is toxic. We'll find out more about what it is, what uh, researchers are doing to sort of trace it, see where it's going, what it's doing, and what they're doing to protect all of us as we go out to enjoy our outdoor spaces, while also trying not to minimize the opportunities to do so. Our lakes are such an attraction both for us who live here and for those who come to visit. So we want to have these lakes available to folks who also need to keep them safe. So here now is our land correspondent, Laura Paskus. I'm Laura Paskus. Two years ago, the Our Land crew came out here to Cochiti Lake and to Abiquiu Lake to learn about blue-green algae. Well, we're back again this year because we know as temperatures keep rising and lake levels keep dropping, that blue-green algae is going to be a problem again this year. And these blooms will look a lot like they did in 2019 when we learned why they're happening and what sorts of problems they can cause. On August 13th, as the high temperature in Albuquerque climbed above normal to 94 degrees, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers closed Abiquiu Lake to swimming and other recreational activities. Nine days later, it closed Cochiti Lake. Cyanobacteria, or well, we know them as blue-green algae. Technically, they're not algae, they're actually bacteria that can photosynthesize so they can harvest light from the sun like plants and um, trees and grasses and shrubs. Um, They live in the water. Generally they're microscopic so you can have 50 of them on the head of a pin. And they're naturally in lakes and rivers and streams and ponds as part of the green part of the food web. So check it out. All of this is this uh, cyanobacteria that's blooming. Becky Bixby is a professor at the University of New Mexico's biology department. She's also associate director of the water resources program, and she studies algae for a living. Low water levels, high temperatures, and long sunny days, of which New Mexico has had plenty of this year, all help trigger these blooms. Runoff from farm fields and ranch lands and upstream pollution are factors, too. A combination of these can cause certain species of cyanobacteria to grow and quickly multiply. Their cells form these blooms in slow-moving waters, like lakes and ponds, and then the blooms can create toxins. John Mueller is the operations project manager at Abiquiu Lake, which is on the Chama River. Most algaes are Uh, not harmful, but what we're seeing up here and what we have tested with higher toxicity levels is a lime green 
uh, kind of like pea soup color. If you see that type of uh, formation or film on the water, avoid it, avoid contact with it. Uh, don't let your pets swim in it. Uh, keep your kids out of it and, and come tell park rangers so we can kind of uh, um, get an understanding of if this is a new area and if what we need to key into. But the biggest thing is just if you see that, stay out of the water. Touching the algae can leave rashes or blisters on your skin. Swallowing it can cause stomach problems. Breathing droplets, like when water skiing or swimming, can also lead to hay fever-like symptoms. And the toxins can even cause liver or neurological problems. And for dogs who gulp lots of water when they swim or lick the algae off their coats, exposure can be fatal. Not only that, when the blooms die off and decay, they use up the oxygen in the water, sometimes triggering fish kills. Mueller and state health officials say they haven't heard reports from people who've gotten sick. And Mueller says they're monitoring the water in the lake and below the dam, where there aren't any signs of the algae. We do not want to negatively affect people coming up and recreating and enjoying the resource. So we're trying to strike the balance of a good response plan, outreach program to educate the public, but also, if necessary, uh, partial closures. We don't want to do a full closure because that does have an impact. But our main goal and focus is to keep our visitors as healthy as possible. Above Abiquiu Lake, water in the Chama River is nutrient-rich with high levels of nitrogen and phosphorus. Because the river moves relatively fast, the blooms aren't a problem there, but that water ends up in the lake. Christopher Barrios is with the New Mexico Environment Department, which regulates pollution and these high nutrient levels. It can come from point sources like wastewater treatment plants. Uh, also a large portion comes from uh, runoff from uh, storm events, uh, agriculture runoff from grazeland and, and irrigation water. It's not realistic to kill off the bacteria in lakes and reservoirs, especially not across such big areas, and the treatments themselves could kill fish and harm the ecosystem. Instead, the goal is to reduce the nutrients getting into the river. That includes working with the ag and livestock communities to stop so much nitrogen and phosphorus from fertilizers and waste from getting into streams and rivers in the first place. These blooms are a problem in the Midwest, in the South, even sometimes in Southern New Mexico, but what we're seeing at Cochiti and Abiquiu this year is new. As the climate warms and lakes and reservoirs keep dropping, we're going to see more of these blooms in New Mexico. That means facing the challenges isn't just about closing lakes here and there or getting through this summer. The blooms are pointing us toward bigger issues in our state when it comes to water supplies, rising temperatures, and water management. In some ways, it's interesting because it brings a lot of people with different interests together, a lot of stakeholders together. Um, people who are managing the reservoirs, people who are managing drinking water, people who are interested in the health. Um, and so pulling these people together to solve this problem is, is really exciting in a state with a lot of reservoirs, and we're dependent on those reservoirs for various things. Even up in northern New Mexico, with its relatively cool summers, this won't be the last time New Mexicans see these blooms and lakes. So, Bixby says, it's important to continue monitoring the water and collecting data on the blooms and why they're happening. She also says it's important that all the agencies and stakeholders stay at the table to think about a statewide plan so we know how to respond to blooms and especially stop them before they happen. 
For New Mexico in Focus and Our Land, I'm Laura Paskus. Well, that will do it for us this time on New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. I want to bring your attention to uh, a couple things for next week. On Wednesday, we will be doing a Facebook Live at noon with Bernalillo County Clerk Linda Stover. You heard uh, in this episode us talk to Chris Manning about that special election. One of the other things that's special about this election is it's the first time that folks can uh, experience same-day voting. So you can register and vote all in the same day, something the legislature passed um, last session. And so this is sort of the test case for that. Folks have some questions still. We want to get you answers. So join us Wednesday at noon on Facebook Live on the New Mexico and Focus page. Or you'll also be able to see it if you follow us on the Focus on New Mexico page. Sign up for that if you haven't already. Great way to interact with us here on the show each and every week. Also next week, we will have an interview with uh, Senator Ben Ray Lujan, long-term congressman in New Mexico, but we haven't had a chance to sit down with him since he moved houses over to the Senate. So our correspondent, Russell Contreras, is going to bring that to you. We'll have a lot of other great stuff as well. But until then, we encourage you to stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you again next time.